Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. On September 6th, 1888, Several thousand people lined the streets of East London to observe a funeral procession as it slowly made its way from Old Montague Street Mortuary to the City of London Cemetery. Leading the procession was a simple hearse that carried the polished elm coffin of a 42-year-old woman named Marianne Nichols. Behind it were two mourning coaches carrying her father, her estranged husband, and two of her five children. Although the crowd attempted to get close enough to get a glimpse of the coffin, they were held back by a number of policemen who were stationed every few yards along the route. The hearse and its mourners finally reached the cemetery, and a short private ceremony was held at the gravesite. Now surely, one would think that a woman who garnered so much attention at the end of her life must have been someone who was held in high esteem by the community. Such an outpouring of respect is usually reserved for royalty or for those who had made their mark on the world by doing some great deed. But the interest in this woman's funeral wasn't the result of her being recognized for a lifetime of charitable works. Instead, it was brought about by a mixture of pity, morbid curiosity, and above all, fear. For you see... Mary Nichols was the first victim of one of the most brutal mass murderers in history, a killer who in time would be known as Jack the Ripper. Marianne Walker was born in London on August 26, 1845. In 1864, 18-year-old Mary married William Nichols, a printer's machinist. But her life would change dramatically in 1880 when she and William separated and he took their five children with him. Mary blamed the separation on her husband for having an affair, but William insisted that their marital problems were the result of his wife's heavy drinking, and it seemed that he was telling the truth. After the separation, Mary's life spiraled out of control. In 1882, her husband stopped paying her weekly support of five shillings because he received word that she was working as a prostitute. As he was not legally required to support his wife if she was earning money through illicit means, Mary stopped receiving support payments from him. Prostitution was a wide-scale problem in Victorian England. It's estimated that around 1,200 women were involved in some form of sex work in the 1800s, though some historians put the number as being much higher. Now, none of these women grew up with the intention of becoming a prostitute. It was a profession they reluctantly took out of economic necessity. But once they became involved in the trade, it was hard to get out of. Some sex workers lived in brothels. Others made their living by making themselves available to soldiers or sailors. But the most common and dangerous form of prostitution was streetwalking. 
and of all the neighborhoods in London, Whitechapel was considered to be the most crime-ridden and dangerous. Mary Nichols spent the last years of her life living in boarding houses and walking the streets. By 1888, she was a severe alcoholic, and she frequently spent all of the money she made as a prostitute supporting her drinking habit. On the last night of her life, she was staying in a lodging house where she shared a bed with an elderly woman named Emily Holland. In the late hours of August 30, 1888, Mary was seen walking Whitechapel Road where she most likely turned a trick or two earlier that night. She stopped in at the Frying Pan Pub for a drink, then returned to her lodging house at around 1.20 a.m., when she arrived, the lodging housekeeper told Mary that she would have to pay the fourpence fee required for her to stay there overnight. Mary said, I'll soon get you the money. Pointing to her new hat, she added, See what a jolly bonnet I've got now? Then she left to walk the streets in order to earn the money to pay for her lodging. The last person to see Mary alive was her roommate, Emily Holland. At 2.30 a.m., she saw Mary walking alone down Osborne Street. Emily would later tell authorities that Nichols was so inebriated that she could barely stand up, and that she had tried to get her to return to their lodging house, but she refused. I've had my lodging money three times today, she told Emily, and I've spent it. Seeing that there was no convincing her to come home, the two parted company. Emily went back to the lodging house, and Mary was last seen walking towards Whitechapel Road. She had just one hour to live. At 3.40 a.m., a cart driver named Charles Cross was walking to work when he came across what he thought was a crumbled canvas cloth lying in front of a stable entrance in Bucks Row, Whitechapel. As he walked closer to investigate, he realized that it was actually the body of a woman. Another cart driver, Robert Paul, approached the area and saw Cross staring down at the body. Cross called over to him and the men examined the body together. Cross touched her face, which was warm, and her hands, which were cold. He thought that the woman was dead, but Paul thought that she might be unconscious. The men pulled her skirt down to cover her lower body, then they ran off to find a policeman. Now, as luck would have it, Constable Jonas Misen was standing at the corner of Hanbury Street in Baker's Row. The men informed the constable of their discovery, and Cross told him, She looks to me to be either dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead. Now, times being different than they are today, the two men continued on to their jobs and Meisen hurried off to look into their discovery. Shortly before he arrived at the scene of the crime, Constable John Neal came upon the body. He flashed his lantern, which caught the attention of another constable named John Thane. Neal shouted, Run at once for Dr. Llewellyn! There's a woman here with her throat cut! As Thane went off looking for the doctor, Neal inspected the crime scene. There were no blood trails, nor were there wheel marks in the road. Dr. Llewellyn arrived at 4 a.m. and determined that the woman was dead. Her body and limbs were still warm, which suggested that she had been dead for approximately 30 minutes. If this is true, then Cross had discovered the body immediately after she had been murdered. 
And indeed, this was a murder. The woman's throat had been sliced twice with a knife. One wound was eight inches long, the other was four inches. Both reached all the way back to her vertebral column and were inflicted from left to right. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were completely severed. The body arrived at Old Montague Street Mortuary at 5.20 a.m. where Dr. Llewellyn conducted a thorough examination of the body. He discovered that the woman's injuries were far more extensive than he had originally thought. Her face was bruised on both sides. One deep, jagged wound ran across her abdomen, and several other slashes were so deep that her bowels protruded through. Four other cuts ran down along the right side of her body, and her genitals had been stabbed twice. Each wound had been inflicted in a violent and downward thrusting manner, and Dr. Llewellyn was of the opinion that all had been made with the same knife and that the blade was between six and eight inches long. He concluded that the woman had been murdered in the location where she had been found and that the killer had some knowledge of human anatomy. Dr. Llewellyn estimated that the injuries would have taken four to five minutes to complete. He believed that the woman had been facing her attacker and that he had held his hand across her mouth before slitting her throat. Death would have been instantaneous, and all of the abdominal injuries had been inflicted after she was dead. By 7.30 p.m., the woman's body had been positively identified as Mary Nichols, and an inquiry into the murder was started. Residents of the area didn't recall hearing anything out of the ordinary that morning. Charles Cross was questioned about finding the body but his testimony was identical to the statement he originally gave to the constable. When he was asked why neither he nor Robert Paul had noticed that Nichols' neck had been slashed, he said that Buck's Row was poorly illuminated, which it was. In the end, the police were baffled by the killer's ability to escape undetected since he certainly had blood all over his hands but it was pointed out that there were so many slaughterhouses in the area that bloody hands and clothing were common and wouldn't have attracted suspicion. The reason why Mary Nichols' funeral procession caught the attention of so many people is due to the press's coverage of the story. Newspapers pointed out that Nichols' killing had occurred within a 300-yard radius of the murders of two other women, Emma Smith and Martha Tabram. All three murders had occurred in the space of less than five months, and the papers were suggesting that a killer must be prowling the streets of Whitechapel. While Emma Smith's injuries didn't match those of Mary Nichols, Martha Tabram's certainly did. She too had been a prostitute, and her killer had stabbed her a total of 39 times. Like Mary Nichols, Smith was stabbed in her lower abdomen and genitals. And like Nichols, she was found lying on her back with her clothing raised to her middle, which exposed her lower half. In spite of the fact that there were so many similarities to Nichols' murder and Tabram's, the police didn't think that they were the work of the same killer simply because Tabram's throat hadn't been slit. 
but modern-day psychologists suggest that the Ripper might have murdered Tabram before perfecting his method of overpowering his victims, then cutting their throats. Martha Tabram's and Mary Nichols' murders certainly had been brutal, but the world was about to see just how depraved this lunatic was. His next victim was a 47-year-old woman named Annie Chapman. Chapman's life mirrored Mary Nichols in many respects. She was brought up in a good family, but started drinking at an early age. She married when she was 29 years old and had three children. Annie had been sober for many years, but after the death of her daughter, she began drinking heavily. After 15 years of marriage, the couple separated because of Annie's drinking and immoral ways. Her husband continued supporting her with weekly payments, but he died two years later, leaving Annie destitute. At the time of her murder, she had been living in a lodging house which she paid for by income from crochet work, selling flowers, and by prostitution. At 6 a.m. on September 8, 1888, an elderly man named John Davis made a gruesome discovery when he opened the back door of his house on 29 Hanbury Street. It was the mutilated body of a woman lying on the ground less than a foot from the back steps. Her face and hands were covered in blood, and her hands were raised and bent with the palms toward the upper portion of her body as if she was trying to protect her throat and there was something resting on both her shoulders, but it was too dark to see what it was. The man ran off to find help, and the three men who came to assist him immediately went in search of a policeman. When the police arrived, they attempted to secure the scene, but by the time the police surgeon, Dr. George Bagster Phillips, arrived, there were already several hundred spectators. Dr. Phillips quickly saw a connection between this woman's murder and the murder of Mary Nichols. The woman's throat was cut from the left to the right side of her neck. Her protruding tongue and swollen face suggested that she had been strangled before her throat was cut. The cuts were so deep that the bones of her vertebral column had deep gashes in them. The doctor concluded that she was dead before her murderer mutilated her abdomen and that a blade of similar size and type had been used in both murders. But these weren't the only injuries to the body. Because she was killed in a fairly secluded spot, the killer had more time to spend with the body, and what he did to it was so horrific that it's impossible to imagine how anyone could be so deranged. The body had been totally disemboweled and sections of her intestines and stomach were removed and placed on her shoulders. An examination of the body at the morgue revealed that part of her uterus and bladder were missing. A thorough investigation was made into Annie Chapman's murder. Several people were investigated by Scotland Yard and detained, but all were eventually released. Now, the police had at least two unsolved murders on their hands, and the public was beginning to panic. Up to this point, the press called the killer the Red Fiend or the Whitechapel Murderer, but police began receiving reports of a man who had been assaulting the local streetwalkers for some time before Nichols' murder. 
The women said that this man would offer them money for their services. Then, when they were alone with him, he would rob them and beat them. They referred to him as Leather Apron because of the garment he wore during these attacks. The press had a field day with this new information, and several newspapers ran sensational stories about this mysterious new suspect. The police would eventually arrest a man named John Pizer. An investigation was launched, his home was searched, and several people who knew him were questioned. But it soon became clear that no one had a bad word to say about the man. What's more, Pizer was unable to do very much at this time due to ill health, and he had an alibi for the nights of the murders. He was quickly released and cleared of being involved in the Whitechapel murders. On September 27th, a possible break in the case came in the form of a letter. The Central News Agency in London received a two-page letter that claimed to be from the killer. It was written in red ink and was filled with misspellings and grammatical errors. The letter read, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work, and I want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. The news agency passed the letter on to the police, who initially thought it was a hoax. But the following day, the killer struck again. Elizabeth Stride was Jack the Ripper's next victim, and her murder was one of two which occurred just hours apart on September 30th. Stride's body was discovered at around 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard, which was a passageway that led to a courtyard where several families lived. The body was discovered by a man named Louis Dimeschultz, a worker at the International Working Men's Educational Club, which was adjacent to the yard. Dimeschultz had driven into the poorly illuminated yard on a two-wheeled cart when his horse abruptly moved to the left to avoid something lying upon the ground. Dimeschultz leaned over and tried to move the object with the end of his whip, but it was too heavy. He got off of the cart to inspect it, and upon lighting a match saw that it was the body of a woman. He immediately ran inside the club and reported his discovery to a group of men who ran off for help. 
Police arrived on the scene a few minutes later, followed by a doctor who examined the body. Blood was still flowing from a single knife wound inflicted to the woman's neck. Her body was still warm, which suggests that she was killed shortly before Daimschultz's arrival. Unlike the Ripper's last victim, Stride's body hadn't been mutilated, most likely because the killer had been interrupted. The doctor suspected that Stride's murderer had pulled her backwards onto the ground by the kerchief she wore around her neck, then cut her throat. Bruising on her chest suggested that she had been pinned to the ground prior to her neck being cut by a single swift slash from left to right. Several patrons of the Working Men's Educational Club were questioned. Those who left the club between 12.30 and 12.50 a.m. said that they hadn't seen or heard anything suspicious. But for the first time, someone may have actually seen the killer that night. A man named Israel Schwartz told investigators that he saw Stride being attacked outside the entrance to Dutfield's yard at approximately 12.45 a.m. He described her assailant as a man who stood approximately five foot five inches tall. He had dark hair and a small brown mustache. Schwartz said that this man tried to pull Stride onto the street, then he turned her around and shoved her to the ground. When the assailant saw that he had been seen, he shouted the word Lipsky, either to Schwartz or to a second man who had just exited the club. Later, police would suggest that the murderer used this Jewish slur to scare the men away. Anti-Semitism was a serious problem in Whitechapel, and many Jews had been assaulted in that area. At about the same time, another witness named James Brown saw a woman who resembled Stride. Brown said that he witnessed the woman rejecting the advances of a stoutish man who was slightly taller than her. The second woman murdered that night was Catherine Edows. Her body was found three-quarters of a mile away from Elizabeth Strides. This amounted to just a 12-minute walk. The killer might have been interrupted after killing Stride, but he definitely spent more time with Catherine Edow's body. She was to be the most horribly mutilated victim so far. Edow's murder is particularly heartbreaking because she was actually safe in police custody just a few hours earlier. At 8.30 p.m. on September 29th, a police officer saw a crowd gathered around a woman who was lying on the ground. It was Catherine Edow's, and she was so drunk that she was nearly unconscious. The police helped her to her feet, but she could barely stand up. She was taken to the police station and put in a cell, and she slept for a while and was released at 1 a.m. on the morning of September 30th. At about 1.30 a.m., three men who were walking together passed a couple who were standing together at the entrance to Church Passage, an alleyway that led into Mitre Square. One of the men said it was Catherine Edows, and he described the man she was with as being around five foot seven inches tall and of medium build. The man was about 30 years old, had a fair mustache, and was wearing a loose-fitting salt-and-pepper jacket with a red handkerchief around his neak On his head was a gray peaked hat. 
Edows was facing this man, and she had one hand on his chest, but it didn't appear that she was resisting him in any way. The killer must have worked incredibly fast, because her body was discovered just fifteen minutes after she was seen by the men. A police officer was making his rounds when he came upon Edow's body. She was lying on her back, with her feet facing into the square, and her skirt was pulled up to her waist. Her face and body were horribly mutilated. Her intestines had been removed and placed on her left shoulder. A two-foot length seems to have been strategically placed between the body and the left arm. Her left kidney and uterus had been removed. The killer took them with him. Unlike the other victims, Catherine Edow's face was horribly mutilated. One thing that interested the police was the fact that a large part of her ear had been severed. This brought to mind the promise that Jack the Ripper had made in his letter, saying that he was going to clip the lady's ears off. Now, throughout all of the murder investigations, there was a debate among doctors and police about whether or not the killer had medical knowledge. Some said it was the skilled work of a surgeon or someone who knew human physiology. Others said that a butcher who worked cutting up animals would have had the same knowledge. At 2.55 a.m., a police officer found a piece of cloth smeared with blood and gore in the open doorway of 108-119 Wentworth Dwellings in Gloucester Street, Whitechapel. Above the cloth, written in chalk, was the misspelled phrase, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Some of the officers believed it was just one of many examples of anti-Semitic graffiti found in that particular area. Others thought there was a real possibility that it had been written by the Ripper himself. When Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren arrived on the scene, he made the decision that the message should be erased because the threat of violent uprisings against Jewish immigrants was ever-present. An officer erased the message with a wet sponge before a photographer could arrive, so it's not known if the writing matched any of the Ripper letters. The cloth turned out to be a piece of linen apron which had been cut by the Ripper from the body of Catherine Edows. This was the only clue dropped by the Ripper during the entire case. It suggested that after he killed Edows, he walked back to the East End, possibly on his way home. The following day, the press made the Jack the Ripper letter public with the hope that someone would recognize the handwriting. But just prior to the release of the Dear Boss letter, a postcard was received by the Central News Agency seemingly penned by the same author. The handwriting was nearly identical, as was the writing style. It was a much shorter message, and this time it was written in black ink. It said, I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not the time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. 
Some of the investigators argued that the postcard was written before the double murders were publicized, which means that it was likely to be genuine. But others pointed out that the card was postmarked more than 24 hours after the double killings took place. By that time, many details of the murders were known to journalists and residents of the area. The Jack the Ripper letter and the Saucy Jackie postcard are the most famous correspondences supposedly written by the murderer. But the fact is, hundreds of letters were sent to the police and to local press claiming to be written by the Whitechapel murderer. Most were considered to be fakes written by newspaper men trying to start a story or by pranksters trying to incite more terror. But at the time, the Dear Boss letter and Saucy Jackie postcard seemed to hold the most promise for being genuine. Another letter that some consider to be genuine is known as the From Hell letter. It was sent to George Lusk, the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, a group of local civilian volunteers who patrolled the streets of the Whitechapel district during the period of the murders. The letter was postmarked October 15th, and it was received the following day. It was delivered along with a small box containing half of what doctors later determined was a human kidney that had been preserved in alcohol. The letter, which was filled with misspelled words, seems to have been written in the dialect of an Irishman. It read, From Hell. Mr. Lusk. Sir. I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. The penmanship doesn't match the Dear Boss letter and Saucy Jackie card, but because the last victim's kidney was removed from the body and taken away, many believed the letter was genuine. Analysis of the kidney found that it was human, that it came from a sickly alcoholic woman who had died within the last three weeks, and that it was from the left side of the body. All of these things point to the kidney as being Catherine Edow's, but medical opinion at the time was that the organ could easily have been acquired by a medical student and sent along with the letter as part of a hoax. It's not exactly known just how many letters were received by authorities and newspapers in Whitechapel during the time of the murders. The October 20, 1888 edition of the Illustrated Police News reported that over 700 letters had been investigated by police, and that was a month before the last murder was committed. Since most of these letters were either discarded, lost, or later destroyed during the bombings in World War II, we'll never know what the actual number was. But we do know that at least 300 of the letters are still preserved at the Corporation of London Records Office. The Ripper's next victim, Mary Jane Kelly, is widely believed to have been his last. Mary was just 25 years old, and she was working as a prostitute when she was murdered on November 8th. But unlike the other four victims, Kelly was killed indoors in a room that she rented. This gave her murderer plenty of time and privacy to mutilate her body. The room was only lit by one candle, 
So the killer burned clothing in the fireplace so he would have enough light to do his fiendish work. And fiendish it was. Of all the victims, Kelly's body was by far the most extensively mutilated. It's believed that it took the murderer about two hours to perform these grisly atrocities. The specifics of what was done to her body are too grotesque to recount here, but by the time the Ripper was finished, there wasn't much left of her internal organs, other parts of her body, or of her face. One thing that was missing from the body was the heart. It was presumably taken by the murderer as a trophy. Between August and November 1888, the murderer known as Jack the Ripper killed at least five women. While there were certainly other women found murdered in Whitechapel after Mary Kelly was killed, none are believed to have been committed by the Ripper. But the question remains, who was Jack the Ripper? When it comes to Ripper suspects, there is certainly no shortage. At the time of the murders, over 2,000 people were interviewed and more than 300 were investigated. Eighty were detained, but all were ultimately released. During the course of the investigation, police regarded several men as strong suspects, but none were ever formally charged. The list of Jack the Ripper suspects is long. Some put the number well over 100. But during my research, I found that the majority of the suspects were so far-fetched that they aren't worth mentioning. Some had committed other murders that didn't resemble the Ripper's methods. Others weren't accused of committing any crimes at all, and a few weren't even in London at the time of the murders. With this in mind, I'd like to take a look at just two suspects, the first being Charles Cross. If the name sounds familiar, it's because he was the man who discovered the body of the first victim, Mary Nichols. Charles Cross's real name was Charles Allen Lechmere. He was born October 5, 1849, in London. He grew up having had two stepfathers and never knowing his real father. Because his mother married three times, he was raised in a series of different homes, so his life wasn't very stable. Not much else is known about his past other than the fact that he married Elizabeth Bostock in 1870 and the couple had 11 children together. At the time of the murders, he was employed as a cart driver for a company he worked at for around 20 years. At the time, Cross wasn't considered a suspect. But given the circumstances, you have to ask yourself, why not? During his testimony into Mary Nichols' murder, he gave his name as Charles Cross, but his real name was Charles Lechmere. Cross was the last name of one of his stepfathers. So why did he lie about his name during the inquest? Some think that it was simply because he didn't want to get involved. Or maybe he had a past police record and he was afraid the police would accuse him of the murder. Or maybe, just maybe, he purposely gave a false name because he was the killer. Another interesting bit of evidence is the fact that Cross's account of discovering the body differs from Robert Paul's account. According to Cross, he had been walking along the opposite side of the street when he saw something lying in the gateway. 
He said that he had walked as far as the middle of the road when he saw that it was the figure of a woman lying there. He claimed that he was still standing in the middle of the road when he heard Paul approaching. He then called over to Paul, and the two walked over to the body together. But according to Robert Paul, Cross was actually standing where the woman was. This suggests that he was standing over the body rather than in the middle of the road. So if Cross was actually standing over Mary Nichols' body, it's possible that Paul had just interrupted him right after he committed the murder. This would explain why the Ripper's trademark mutilations weren't present in this victim. Instead of running away, Cross may have stood there acting as if he was in shock at having found the body. Even though Cross was at the scene of the first crime, is there anything else that could connect him to the other four murders? It turns out there is. The police always believed that the murderer lived or worked in the area. It turns out that every one of the sites of the five murders corresponds with Cross's walk from home to work or, in one case, from work to his mother's house. This is important because the Ripper didn't handpick his victims. He was an opportunistic killer. He struck at a time and place that he felt he could safely get away with murder. It's easy to imagine Cross approaching a prostitute in an area he knew was well hidden, killing them, then continuing off to work or to home. Another important thing to keep in mind is that criminals tend to strike in areas that are not too close to home and where they're comfortable and familiar with. A modern forensic method called geographic profiling narrows down likely suspects by analyzing their habitual movements and locations in comparison to crime scenes. Given Cross's work route and place of residence, of all the possible Ripper suspects, he is the most plausible. Because he wasn't considered a suspect at the time, Cross was essentially forgotten by the police. There isn't even a description of him, so we don't know if he resembled the man seen at two of the murder scenes. This anonymity could have given him the confidence he needed to continue murdering women and to get away with it because he wasn't on anyone's radar. But if Cross was Jack the Ripper, we have to wonder why there were no other victims after Mary Kelly's murder. Serial killers rarely stop their killing sprees unless they're caught or they die. Apparently, Cross stayed in the area long after the murders had stopped. But even though there were no further murders attributed to the Ripper, plenty of women were murdered in the Whitechapel area after Mary Kelly. So it's possible that he continued killing, but changed his methods in order to elude the police. We'll never know the truth about Cross's guilt or innocence. He died in 1920 at the age of 71 in Bow, England, less than three miles from Whitechapel. Another intriguing suspect in the Ripper's murders is Aaron Kosminski, a man who emigrated from Poland to England in the early 1880s. At the time of the murders, he was working as a barber in Whitechapel. A note written in 1894 by Sir Melvin McNaughton, the assistant chief constable of the London Metropolitan Police, names one of the suspects as a Polish immigrant called Kosminski. 
In the note, McNaughton stated that there were strong reasons for suspecting Kosminski because he had a great hatred of women with strong homicidal tendencies. At the time of the murders, Kosminski lived either on Providence Street or Greenfield Street, both of which addresses are close to the sites of the murders. Chief Inspector Donald Swanson, who led the Ripper investigation, also named Kosminski as a suspect. He said that the police had been watching him at his brother's house in Whitechapel. In 1891, Kosminski threatened his sister with a knife and he was taken away with his hands tied behind his back, first to a workhouse, then to Colney Hatch Asylum. The asylum's records indicated that Kosminski was a paranoid schizophrenic, but the notes about his case didn't mention violent tendencies. Although Kosminski was a barber in the Whitechapel area, he only worked sporadically most likely due to his struggles with mental illness. In the early 1980s, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit conducted a study of serial killers and found that nearly 70% reported unsteady employment. But it's also important to keep in mind that all of the murders occurred on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and in the early hours of the morning. This suggests that the killer was probably employed during the week. Geographic profiling puts Kosminski's residence at the very center of all of the murders. What's even more interesting is the fact that the first murder occurred close to his home. This is significant, as an FBI report found that the first attack in a serial homicide was likely to occur closest to the offender's home. Even though circumstantial evidence does seem to point to Kosminski as being the Ripper, there are a few things to consider before we jump to any conclusions. Even though he lived at the center of where the killings took place, hundreds of other people did too. And even though serial killers sometimes work sporadically, many people living in the same area did as well. It's also important to know that Kosminski didn't have a record of harming anyone before he was institutionalized. He was never arrested for assault, and no one ever said that he harmed them in any way. When he was taken into custody in 1891, it was for threatening his sister with a knife. But by all accounts, he was fairly docile during the time he spent in the asylum. The only violent episode he had there was when he threw a chair at an attendant in January of 1892. If Jack the Ripper was a man who no one took notice of, then he definitely was not Aaron Kosminski. Kosminski's mental illness manifested in ways that would have made him extremely conspicuous in public. For one thing, he had a phobia of eating food that was handed to him, so he would pick up bits of bread out of the gutter and eat them, and he would only drink water straight from the tap. As far as hygiene goes, he rarely washed or bathed, so he must have looked and smelled terrible. Just prior to being committed to the asylum, he tended to speak only in German, so this would also have made him stand out in public. His paranoid eating habits kept him emaciated for years so he would have looked terribly thin. As a matter of fact, when he died in 1919 at the age of 53, he weighed just 96 pounds. It's important to note that Kosminski was committed to the asylum in February of 1891, 
three years after the last Ripper murder. If he had a need to kill women and butcher their bodies, why would he have suddenly stopped for all that time? Kosminski was so mentally ill that it would have been nearly impossible for him to stop any of his compulsions. So, while it's true that Aaron Kosminski or Charles Cross could have been the Ripper, there are certainly enough holes in those theories to keep us wondering. There are many different theories about who Jack the Ripper was, and most don't involve any of the top suspects. One is that he was a sailor who was in the area during the time of the killings, and who left on the boat he came in on when his shore leave was up. Interestingly, in Nicaragua, a series of almost identical murders occurred a few months after the last Whitechapel murder. Over a ten-day period, six women were brutally murdered in alleyways and other out-of-the-way places. All were prostitutes, and all were horribly mutilated. In two of the cases, the women's faces had been hacked away to the point that they were totally unrecognizable. Was this the work of the Ripper who pulled into a new port, or of a copycat killer? Some believe that the killer was actually a woman, one likely suspect being a midwife named Mary Piercy. She was convicted of murdering her lover's wife and child and hanged in 1890 and she used a method similar to the Ripper's to commit the crimes. 135 years after the murders, we're no closer to knowing the true identity of Jack the Ripper. What do I think? My gut feeling is that none of the suspects were the killer. I believe he was a mentally deranged sociopath who showed no emotion before or after the killings. I think he worked full-time in Whitechapel, and that he joined in discussing the killings with his co-workers when London was in the grip of terror during those eight months. I don't believe he ever wrote a letter to the newspaper or to anyone else, so I think they were all hoaxes. He was probably someone who was so well-known in the area, and his outward demeanor was so unassuming that no one would ever suspect him. But I don't think he was a genius at being able to elude the police. I think he was just lucky. It's a widely held belief that serial killers don't stop killing until they're caught or they die. But this isn't always the case. Some have been known to stop murdering altogether before being caught, usually because events or circumstances prevent them from pursuing more victims. In the Ripper's case, I believe he stopped killing because he thought police were on to him. Then he simply moved out of the Whitechapel area. Do I think he continued to murder women after he moved? Possibly, but I doubt that he killed with as much ferocity or frequency as he did in Whitechapel. After all, he had gotten away with murder at least five times. He wouldn't call attention to himself by committing the same type of murder in a different city or town. To quote Sherlock Holmes, It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts in order to suit theories, instead of theories to suit facts. The fact is, the data we have about the Whitechapel murders is outdated, flawed, and incomplete. 
Modern theories about the killer do just what Holmes warned against. They twist facts to suit theories, and they base their theories on flawed data. But that won't stop the worldwide army of ripperologists from continuing the search. If you have a theory about Jack the Ripper, I'd love to hear it. Please leave me a message at the email address in the program notes, and I'll share these in an upcoming podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings.